Welcome to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. With me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gash Burnett. Welcome back to Berlin Inside Out, the foreign affairs podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow here at the Council, and I'm here with my friend and co-host Aaron Gash-Burnett, a journalist specializing in German politics. Now, Aaron, this is our penultimate episode for our first season, and we're hearing from one very special final guest this season on Berlin Inside Out today. But we really saved a pretty incredible guest for the end, didn't we? I think we definitely did, Ben. Uh, joining us on this episode is none other than Alexander Vindman. He is a retired lieutenant colonel with the U.S. Army, the former director of European Affairs for the United States National Security Council, and the best-selling author of Here, Right Matters, an American Story, where he writes about his decision to report the infamous phone call that led to Donald Trump's impeachment between... Uh, Trump and President Ukrainian President Zelensky. That was where Trump decided to try to extort Zelensky to help him with political challengers at home ahead of the 2020 U.S. election, and that prompted um, Vindman's decision to report that and testify. That's right. And it was that act of bravery and courage uh, by someone who was in a very senior position in the U.S. administration at that time, which has made him recognized to millions of people around the U.S. and around the world. And it's funny because we we met with Alex just uh, in, in October last year, and he joined us in both Berlin and Prague. And when we were in Prague, we were in a restaurant, and he was actually recognized by a member of the general public there who came up and thanked him for his service and for that, uh, that courageous act of his. Uh, so it was a real pleasure to talk to Alex. Uh, but what's he doing now, Aaron? Well, he is now a senior fellow at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies, where he is busily writing another book uh, about the strategic challenges of our time and mobilizing support for Ukraine in his full schedule. Uh, he spoke to us on a previous episode in October, uh, Ben, I know you remember, uh, when Berlin Side Out headed to Prague to discuss grand strategy for liberal democracies. Of course, in Prague, that is where he was recognized in that restaurant. It was a pretty amazing moment to, to be a part of. Um, and And he appeared along with former Estonian President Thomas Ilves and Europe correspondent and columnist Caroline de Groeter on that episode where we focused on Central and Eastern Europe. That's right. And what Alex emphasized then was that Europe needs to take a more strategic approach to defending itself, to be clear about the stakes involved in the current challenges we see from Russia, but also from other competitors, authoritarian competitors that democratic regimes face. And that's something we talked to him more uh, about when he was with us in Berlin, in our regular recording room at the DGAP, the uh, the Lesersaal, uh, as we yes. call it here. <laughs> the reading room. And um, I mean, it's a reading room normally, but we do a lot of talking in here. That's And true. one of the things we really spoke to Alex about was why for him, democracies should base actually their strategic approach on their values rather than interests, as many would say. And that's a theme that resonates, of course, throughout Berlin Side Out's first season. And we'll be talking more about that in our final episode next week. Yeah, that's right. We also asked him about uh, the possibility of another Trump presidency and about how Europe, the US, NATO and the Western world more generally need a new strategy for the Russian threat, um, sort of the democratic uh, club against the authoritarian one, and for supporting Ukraine, no matter who wins in the White 
Lighthouse. That's right. And that has to do with what we've talked about uh, many times on this show as well, about regenerating our own democracies and about creating those societies that are truly worth defending and seem more like they're worth defending to enough people. So Alex is one of the people uh, who really gets that. Let's, uh, let's listen into that conversation. Alex Vindman, welcome to Berlin and Berlin Side Out. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. One of the big concerns that we have here in Germany in particular, and much of the rest of Europe also, I think, shares, centers on the possibility of Trump uh, returning to the White House, or indeed, as we've talked about on this podcast before, someone like him, uh, because of some of the other candidates that we have in that particular race, who uh, might be less concerned with transatlantic uh, security than predecessors. If that happens, how concerned do you think Germans and Europeans should be, and what should we do about it? Thanks for having me on. Uh, glad to participate and have this conversation with our transatlantic friends. We should be ex exceptionally concerned because, frankly, it would be disastrous for U.S. democracy. And uh, what happens in the U.S. matters around the world. And I think it would be uh, disastrous, frankly, for the globe. And the trajectory of progress towards democracy around the world would, would take a huge setback. But you, you mentioned the, the books. I'll just briefly mention that before we go into to Trump, New York Times bestseller list number two. That one was a story of not just uh, the, the Trump impeachment, impeachment one. It wasn't just kind of focused on the, the corruption and the desire to extort a uh, investigation into President Biden to tip the scales in, in um, Trump's favor in the 2020 election. But it was also the story of uh, what the Russians um, gained from that experience, what they learned, the opportunity and vulnerability, and a little bit about my own kind of decision-making. So it was a little bit, because I'm a military officer, military leadership, what it was in my background that kind of allowed me to navigate the affair. This next book, frankly, is a little bit easier for me because it's a policy book, and I'm, I'm a policy wonk, former policymaker. It is a very interesting uh, deep dive, a diplomatic history into U.S. relations with Russia and Ukraine since 1991, and it's the backstory to this war. What, what decisions did we make along the way that uh, we missed the opportunities to either challenge Russia's aggression or um, support Ukraine and harden Ukraine? It's an unfortunate story that also, when we look at present day, suggests we have not learned anywhere near enough. We have not, frankly, fully uh, given up on the notion that we need to have a, a relationship with Russia as the core player in the region. Uh, there is still a great deal of desire for a return to status quo ante. And I think that's that's highly problematic. And we're underinvesting in our relationship in Ukraine because of that, uh, because we fear what a Ukraine victory and a Russian loss might be, instead of more appropriately fearing what a Ukraine loss would be, because that would be, a, a uh, frankly, a, a a game changer around the globe. So that's what that's what this next book is about, and it's it's a transformation of my dissertation for the general audience. I find this fascinating because I I also had the experience of transforming a dissertation into a book about missed opportunities with Ukraine, but from the EU's point of view, looking at how the EU failed to truly include Ukraine and how the um, this hesitant embrace that it put Ukraine in was as much about keeping it at arm's length as actually drawing it in, and. To me, that's also part of the backstory to this war, um, that Ukraine didn't get the support it needed. It wasn't included in the ways that it needed. From your perspective, why was that a strategic mistake? There are multiple different reasons why uh, Ukraine wasn't included. I think a lot of them had to do with the Moscow factor. I guess the opportunity cost of engaging with Ukraine and the, the impact that would have on the relationship with Russia. And for instance, for Germany, 
Uh, I'm not a core expert on Germany, but I think the fact is that they saw much better yields with a relationship with, with Russia in the short term and didn't see those kinds of benefits with, with Ukraine. From the U.S. standpoint, uh, you know, for my methodology, I basically interviewed uh, principals, policy, the principal decision makers, you know, President Clinton, um, Vice President Gore, the national security apparatus from various moments, and they, the rhetoric was really quite high. We need to succeed with Russia. We need to see, succeed with Ukraine. Ultimately, we re- succeed with neither. There's also quite a bit of uh, discussion about we didn't want to set a new template with Ukraine outside of the security apparatus as we, as we you know, secured Central and Eastern Europe by bringing them into NATO, um, meeting their own desires. But that didn't really materialize. And again, that fe- we, our policy fell victim to buying into a, a sense of Russian exceptionalism, that Russia was different. That Russia, because it was you know the largest country in, in the world, largest nuclear arsenal, ma- major conventional power, a lot of opportunities with regards to resources and engagement, that it required us to prioritize that relationship consistently. And you could almost make a logical case for it in the 90s. Misplaced, but you know the the the, the enormous amounts of optimism about the end of history and the, and the transformation of Russia could almost almost justify it. But as the signals were relatively quick, really 1993 on that Russia has been was not a fully transformed state, uh, it was harder and harder to justify. And the Eastern Europeans and the Balts were very alert raising the alarms about the fact that Russia has, had not changed and those signals were not heeded. Right, they were ignored and dismissed as Russophobia, but are you well, one of the loudest and strongest voices saying, we have to deal with the Russia we have, not the Russia we wish we had. And that was a lesson hard learned in Germany, I think. Over years, too, that's the thing. As you were saying, these signposts are not new. No. So I'm actually wondering why it's taken us so long. I think there's a fundamental uh, driver. Yes, there was a uh, buy-in to Russian exceptionalism, that Russia was the regional hegemon. I think there is, from the U.S. side, a bit of a proclivity to like to have relationships with other great powers. We want those to be benign great powers, but sometimes we'll, you know, if somebody else manages their own backyard and we we can focus on, you know, a handful of key relationships instead of relationships everywhere around the world that's preferred. I think that's actually the case with, with great powers in general. That sounds like Germany uh, as well, that we like to have relationships with hegemons. France in particular uh, thinks about Central and Eastern Europe as flyover countries. Germany to to maybe a slightly lesser extent, UK. I think it's all of the kind of the the great powers. But there was another feature, and I think this is maybe kind of a more base psychological rather than just a a, um, political science feature of, of why we favored Russia so much. One is we had deeply misplaced aspirations of what could be achieved with Russia. The areas that we actually were successful are, were areas where Russia also had a key national security interest to engage. Those were on arms control. It wanted to buy down uh, you know, the costs of, of, arm, uh, of nuclear investments and rebuild its conventional capability to control its backyard. Uh, so we were able to do stuff there. But really, in no other area were we able to achieve much. Uh, so we had deeply misplaced aspirations, an element of hubris in that we could, through our for- force of will, could achieve Something that, you know, uh, if we had a cooler, colder analysis, we would have recognized as impossible. And then fears, fears of a devolving relationship, fears of a cold war, frankly, fears of what happens if Russia fails, what, what follows. Something that is completely, so now we don't have as many of those hopes. We've, we've now kind of eased back on those hopes. I mean, I think there's still factions that believe that we could get to some sort of status quo ante, but they're silenced or kind of marginalized for the time of the moment. But the fear faction is critical. That's the fear faction of escalation. And more importantly, that's the fear faction of what happens to Russia in failure. Either new leadership 
that's somehow worse than Vladimir Putin. I would contend that there isn't anybody worse. That if you look at the arc of, of his leadership, putting Europe into a situation with the largest war since World War II and on, on the brink, of, frankly, of a, of a world war, uh, that's a pretty pretty bad outcome. And then what happens if Russia fractures? I think also somewhat a far-fetched notion. The prospects of Russia fracturing, I've been thinking about this and looking at this more carefully. Maybe I have too, too rosy a view that Russia is likely to stay intact except for the periphery, like the North Caucasus. Uh, Russia tends to be the dominant population um, in, you know, in from St. Petersburg all the way to Vladivostok, those minor, uh, majorities thin out in certain areas like Tatarstan, but they still have the majorities. Uh, and what ends up happening is if Russia fractures, what happens with loose nukes? What happens with nuclear proliferation? And this is not speculation. And this is, you know, one of the things I was able to uncover in my research, which was really fascinating. And, and Bob Gates, the former Secretary of Defense Director of CIA, pointed me in this direction, is he established something called the UnGroup. Funny name, in 1989, after the fall of Berlin Wall, Ungroup because it wasn't supposed to exist. It was led by Condoleezza Rice. It was supposed to look at this counterfactual uh, or kind of remote scenario of what happens if Russia, uh, if the Soviet Union collapsed. And for the two years that they were operating, they basically settled on the worst case scenarios, low probability events, nuclear proliferation, loose nuke scenarios, high consequence, low probability. But uh, that's what they, they were hyper focused on. And that's really still the same thing that uh, our U.S. government is, is focused on. I think that's what, frankly, uh, all the Western governments are focused on, high consequence, low probability events, and frankly, events that are probably beyond our control. These are internal dynamics that are now uh, developing, uh, kind of Russia's unraveling because of a disastrous war, um, decades of mismanagement, and we probably can't really control what happens to Russia internal. So it's about controlling its external effects. Uh, we could control its ex external effects. We could contribute to Ukraine's victory. That is an affirmative policy, not something that we, like Russia's internal policies, which we don't even play a role in. I mean, the U.S. kind of abstains for anything a Russia internal has for a long time. Um, we don't in interfere in Russia's internal affairs, regardless of all those kind of Machiavellian views of what, uh, what the U.S. does around the world. We just don't do that in Russia. Exactly. Something we've been arguing a lot, that it's amazing how many people fixate on what you say is low probability, very low probability, massive uncertainty around all of this, rather than focusing on the absolute certainty we have of the damage that Russia is doing to all of us right now, and especially to Ukraine. So, as you rightly put it, contributing to Ukraine's victory is the strategy there. So why hasn't the Biden administration firmly committed to Ukraine's victory? Is this because we're perhaps afraid of the wrong thing, that we are more afraid of these kinds of, as you say, high, high consequence, low probability events, rather than pricing in what actually happens um, if Russia actually that, that wins is, in Ukraine? I think that's exactly right. I think the fact is that we tend to, um, we tend to uh, consistently because we're so short-term oriented, we only price in what's in front of us and then not the long-term effects. That was obviously the, the, the consequence of a short-termism with regards to our policy with Russia. We, we thought that we were buying down risk in the short-term, but didn't realize that it was stacking up highly adversarially to our interest in the long-term. And now we're paying those costs. I mean, we're paying those costs monetarily, whether it's Germany, $200 billion to, to kind of support uh, the energy uh, flows for a, to, to survive a winter, or the entire globe playing uh, Putin a oil and gas tax because of the price of energy. That, if you start to price that in, that's a massive, massive cost. We're probably talking about you know maybe a trillion dollars or something like that. I don't know. I, I, that's, that, that, that probably number, that number might be too high, but it's, it's a massive number, frankly, and we didn't, we didn't price that in because we're 
overly concerned about the short term. But I think um, from the U.S. side, the policymakers are deeply concerned about the worst case scenarios. And that's why when I, when I try to engage with them, I talk about the, there are two, two real factors to appraise risk. It's the, the, the consequence, which could potentially be catastrophic, but the probability, which is extremely low. And in what cases are we really concerned? We're concerned about only one factor here, nuclear. What is the risk of a nuclear confrontation with Russia? I don't think it fundamentally has changed from you know the day before the war. If it has, it's just kind of a you know minor blip in in, in elevation. And the reason is because mutually the doctrine of mutually assured destruction holds, and the Russians are you know no more suicidal than than anybody else. Um, they are equally uh, concerned about the the comforts and security of their families. You could see that expressed by Putin in the way he interacts with folks, extremely c- conscious and concerned about his own health and well-being, whether that was in COVID sitting you know, meters away from his closest advisors. Huge yeah. sushi table yeah. Um, I, meme. Yeah, I, I described it as like a football pitch, frankly, yeah. but uh, away from his closest advisors. So I think the bottom line is that, um, you know, the, the, there is really not a fundamental risk. The risk comes from accident or miscalculation as, a, as this conflict uh, continues and grows and potential of spillover. And, uh, and I think the potential, potential of spillover is actually not negligible. I think if things go badly over a long term, uh, the eastern flank in particular, that feels that this war is existential already in its current form, uh, may not sit out on the sidelines. Uh, I'm not saying that they're not sitting, they're, they're contributing huge amounts of resources and you know, percentages of, of GDP, but they might actually go in with their own force to bolster Ukraine. And they'll do that because they right, would rather fight on Ukrainian territory than their own. So I think if this war goes badly and we're, we're looking at a couple more years of war, uh, certainly we're looking through the rest of 2024. That's, there's no question in my mind. Uh, but if we're looking at a couple of years of war, I think the fact is that the Soviet, uh, um, correction, that's funny, uh, the, the Russian military uh, and the Russian, the, industrial base, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Russian industrial base uh, could potentially start to overwhelm Ukraine, uh, regardless of their will to, to fight and win and liberate their territory. There is the fear of escalation there, and this is something that comes up in Germany a lot. But as you rightly say, we have mutually assured destruction. We have deterrence, which isn't very well understood in public or in political circles here even. And as you said, I mean, it's not just the Russians who love their kids. The Poles love their kids too, so do the Czechs, but they take a very different stance than Germany. However, one thing that's come up recently is the German fear about the election in the US. Um, The worry that the nuclear deterrent would be effectively taken away. We know the US basically is the guarantor of German security. How would that be affected by a Trump victory? I've thought about this issue a lot, but not in the, in the uh, context of the US nuclear deterrent or ex- extended deterrent, um, you know, basically unwinding. So I would say, first of all, before you get to nuclear, uh, you have to contend with the fact that uh, you'd have a conventional confrontation. You're not going to automatically jump to a, a nuclear war with Russia. They would attempt to be successful, you know, deter, find war termination uh, or meet uh, war termination objectives conventionally. But they don't have much capacity. They're all in on Ukraine. There is not a reserve of, cap- of war fighting capacity that they're holding back to fight against NATO. And that means that NATO would relatively quickly dispense with the Russian conventional military, which means that you quickly escalate through conventional to nuclear. There is, of course, a, a limited uh, nuclear capability um, in, in NATO. That wouldn't go away, actually. So even if, if, we, if the U.S. withdrew from NATO, I think the, um, that NATO itself would retain a uh, tactical nuclear capability. It's still a deterrent. Uh, but I think the bigger issue is this. Can Europe go it alone with regards to uh, sec- its security and contending with Russia on its flanks? 
And that's unclear. I'd say that it has a, the capacity to do that, but it might not have the will to uh, invest in the industrial base, uh, invest in the development of, of a, a sufficiently potent force to uh, defend its interests. Right, this is, and this is what we've seen. The contradiction in the German position on this is if that terror of extended deterrence being withdrawn were real, actually believed, then we would see a massive rearmament program from Germany, which we're not seeing. We would also probably see, as we've also discussed here, um, sort of a revitalization in some ways um, of some of the aspects of the relationship with the UK. I think, you know, the bigger issue is this. If Trump were to win, which, by the way, is a remote possibility, and I'll explain that in a second. If he were to win, the fact is that he would likely break our uh, alliances, our Euro Atlantic alliances. And we'd become increasingly isolationist and we would become a uh, unreliable partner. And that would undermine NATO Article 5. It might not mean a broader conventional war, but it might mean an exchange of strikes with Russia that might test it. NATO Article 5 absent in the U.S. I think that, that is the key component. Uh, U.S. is basically undergirds Article 5. Without, without that, I think the Russians have a di whole, wholly different calculation. And it might be something that they choose to play with and see if there's a divide within Europe, east to west and so forth, north south. So, uh, But I think... Um, the problem is that Trump has a uh, deep, deep animus towards Ukraine and is also has a, you know, I guess almost a fealty towards um, authoritarian leaders and a, a uh, you know, a, a very strong kind of like of Vladimir Putin. And I think those conditions, those are the starting conditions. Even now, even 20 months in, into the war, uh, those are the starting conditions, and that is a recipe for disaster with regards to European, uh, with, with regards to the Ukraine confrontation, with regards to European security. Now, wh why do I think it's not going? He's not likely to win. Um, he's going to be the the Republican nominee. That's almost certain. It doesn't. The thresholds for him to be the Republican nominee in a two person contest are relatively low. He's got he's locked in about twenty percent of the uh, of his Republican electorate. And he'll cross the threshold to uh, you know win the primaries and be the nominee, but it's a game of numbers, and usually you you want it to be additive, and you want to bring over, you want to you know bring out your own people, get out the vote, but also persuade, especially independents. Independents are a large swath of the American electorate, and all he's done is chipped away continuously, chipped, chipped, chipped away at that kind of support. Very unpopular with independents. Not to say that Joe Biden is you know is very popular, but. But, uh, Trump is deeply unpopular with independents. So uh, he's, it's just very unlikely that he's going to be able to get through the general election. But as in everything, the margins are so razor thin. The margins between Ukraine's victory and Russia's defeat or the other way around, very thin. The margins between you know, uh, U.S. democracy uh, continuing on and, uh, or un unraveling, very thin. And frankly, I think the margins for the, for the world in general um, whether it's some sort of pullback of democracy around the world and the rise of authoritarian, authoritarianism are all th very thin, and it shouldn't be that thin. And I think I also think that this speaks to the need um, as well, even if it is a remote possibility, it is still a possibility. We saw even the 2016 election, that result was considered a remote possibility, and yet it happened. And I do think that in Europe, um, we are not nearly as advanced as we should be, perhaps, on the discussions of Article 5 doesn't just bind the U.S. It is not just about um, a security guarantee by the U.S. Article 5 does, in fact, bind all of us. 
uh, as well. So um, I think that it's important discussion to have just in case we do end up in that situation, the Russians do choose to test um, our own commitment to Article 5 without the U.S. should that ever happen. But uh, even uh, if Joe Biden is re-elected, we uh, do seem to be faced uh, still with the United States that really this time does expect Germany and Europe to do more for its own defense and neighborhood, not least because the Taiwan Strait might command more U.S. attention uh, in the future. Um, Is this time different? Um, You know, is it more we really mean it this time? Is uh, what is the U.S. expecting of its allies, particularly Germany? You know, it's interesting. I was uh, my my initial thought was like, you know, what what are our choices for the U.S. between uh, criminal and inadequate? Frankly, to a certain extent, we have one candidate that that's criminal and will uh, will corrupt our democracy, and we'll we have another candidate that's been in a lot of ways pretty effective, at least in in rebuilding relationships, but not entirely adequate for dealing with the the crises around the world. Uh, the rhetoric hasn't kind of matched the, the actions. Right, simply not being Trump is not enough. Yeah, it's a suboptimal scenario, uh, kind of a recipe for muddling through. And uh, I think the, the stakes are, are too high and the dangers are, are too high for, for this, but that's where we are. Yeah, what, what does Germany, what does the US expect of its allies, especially Germany? I think the expectations are actually not that different, but the means of, uh, of uh, realizing those expectations are wild, wildly different. So we want um, Germany to take uh, a much, much more central role in, in European security. By all rights, should have that because of uh, its economic heft, uh, its potential to play a major role in European security. Uh, and we've tried different ways. Uh, if you, you know, kind of take a agnostic view to the politics, we've tried different ways to motivate Germany to do that. Uh, certainly a decade of pressing Germany to get more involved uh, in European security, certainly kind of whales and, and commitments to 2% that that uh, floundered. And then, of course, there was the, the, the Trump ham-handed kind of absurd approach um, that, you know, Germany needs to pay its dues, otherwise it's kicked out of the club. Um, so I think we're now back to a much more reasonable approach. And if, if Germany lives up to some of the rhetoric, then it's going to invest $100 billion in, into uh, its own uh, military industrial capability. And that would that'd go a long way to satisfying, I think, uh, our, West, our U.S. desires to um, get Germany involved and the crowd that claims that Germany's a security free rider and uh, not, not doing enough. So I think from our standpoint, it also does, I mean, and there's, there are different views, of course, in, in the U.S. I think you would get the argument potentially from the Biden administration that Germany's doing well. They're, they're doing enough. They've been a good partner. But then that, that is probably uh, not the, the large number of former policymakers that include myself that believe both the U.S. and Germany have d- done far too little to secure our own interests. And what, w- what is in fact required is a major reinvestment into um, our, our defense industrial base and a much, much clearer commitment to, um, to Ukraine as a uh, critical, maybe essential uh, focal point for security, and uh, actually have a, not, not just a bumper sticker of uh, as long as it takes, but whatever it takes also. And I think there's, you know, the, the problem is that we have not, and this is, this, these conversations have occurred numerous times behind the scenes. What is a strategy? I come from a military backer, background where you lay out the objective, 
So the end state is Ukrainian victory, and then you develop a strategy, and then you apply all the resources in order to, to get there. But we don't have a clear objective. What we have uh, uh, is something a lot closer to uh, preserving a bit of the status quo without, with the, without the recognition that the status quo is probably untenable in the long term. And, and you know, a year, couple of years down the road, Russia could get the upper hand. And then we work, end up in a kind of a near worst case scenario. So I think there is, uh, frankly, a lack of, of strategic thinking, uh, both in the U.S. and in Germany, about what we want to achieve with this war. And I think for me, it's pretty straightforward. There are, there are a couple of groups that have absolute clarity. Not the U.S., not, the, not Germany. You're, you're in neo-idealist country here. So. <laughs> Three guesses as to who those are, right? Yeah. yeah, the Ukrainians have absolute clarity. The Ukrainians want to return back to the internationally recognized boundaries of 1991. The Russians pretty much have absolute clarity. They want to subordinate the, the entire country. I think uh, before that could have been, you know, through, uh, through indirect control, now it's direct control. And they're, from their standpoint, you know, the, the four annexed territories are just a temporary condition. They want the entire country. But the rest of the world, um, as allies to Ukraine, haven't figured out what they want. And it, to me, it's, it's relatively straightforward. We want, first of all, Russia to suffer a, uh, you know, decisive defeat that doesn't necessarily mean, uh, that, which means that it withdraws from, from uh, Ukrainian territory, in my view, probably with the exception of Crimea. And this is where I think some of the Central Eastern European allies have been extremely clear on this. Not only do they advocate a clear victory for Ukraine, the expulsion of Russia, return of control to Ukraine's 1991 borders, but also a secure settlement afterwards, which means bringing Ukraine into NATO at the earliest Absolutely. opportunity, yep. because otherwise Russia's going to be back for another go. Sure. How do you also get the investment needed to, to reconstruct Ukraine without that security guarantee? So I think there is there is clarity among some of the allies. Germany is not one of them. That's been, been manifestly clear. But let me follow up on what you said a second ago. Um, so you said Germany actually keeping its promises would be a good start basically. But we know that the 100 billion special fund, the Sondervermogen, is only enough to plug the biggest holes in Germany's military capability. And it's based on an old shopping list. It's not one that is updated to really include the needs of a modern, large scale military force. So I think there's, you're right in saying that Germany has not reassessed enough. And we haven't seen that commitment because we lack the objective, because we lack the clear vision of what is not only to be done with the war, but what is to be done with the peace afterwards. Let's, uh, let's also follow up on that a little bit, uh, because you were talking about uh, the need to revive our defense industrial base. And I'm assuming that when you say we, it also means us over here in Germany as well as in the US. Um, are we perhaps needing to also discuss the concept of comparative advantage when it comes to uh, what else we should actually be spending this money on in Germany, not just the, the Sondervermögen, but um, increasing our um, defense spending over time, um, the idea that we can't necessarily do everything in Germany, but we should focus on what we, you know, what we can do well. And one of those things is uh, defense industrial base. What would your advice be in how Germany should go ahead with pressing that advantage? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, market cap capitalism might point the way. You basically uh, play to your strengths. Um, so, uh, you know, Germany has a large industrial base for sales abroad as a reasonably de uh, uh, developed kind of um, uh, uh, defense re research and development arm in partnership with the UK and, and France and Italy. Um, basically, you, you come up with a consortium approach where you develop the resources that you need 
Um, maybe you do something like what the U.S. is doing with, a, a, with its F-35s and, and distribute the manufacturing and allow, allow those benefits to be spread, and those kind of industrial-based benefits. That's what we've started to see with this new deal on tanks on the Leopard 2 uh, A8 variant. So what you need is, you know, what's missing is, frankly, a comprehensive security approach from the EU, EU as a whole. So that would be this idea of maybe even the French idea of, of uh, EU d- defensive uh, um, defense capability, but maybe it doesn't even have to be with regards to the manpower, uh, with regards to formations. Maybe that still remains within the purview of countries, but at least at the industrial base level with the manufacturing, with the armaments, that would be an interesting place to go. And then, you know, frankly, folk, uh, uh, different militaries focus on their strengths. You know, the Brits with uh, maritime, um, you know, the, the Germans, uh, I think the, the French with air, the Germans with, I guess, I don't know. Could you make the argument that Germans have good ground force uh, equipment? I don't know. Uh, not really at the moment, no. Uh, but Poland's building a large yeah. ground force. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, point, point taken there indeed. The problem with this is that Germany and France have often been pushing more Europe in this area, but more Europe has precisely meant more France and more Germany. And as long as the Central Eastern Europeans see that continuing, there's not going to be more Europe because it's not in their interest to do it. So I think you're right that Germany needs to learn to share. By helping the team to win, they actually gain themselves too. So giving a little to get more. The question might be uh, convincing, you know, the German industrialists that it's in their it's in their long term interests, not their short term kind of you know shareholder interests, but their long term interests to tie supply chains to uh, Central and Eastern Europe, and uh, I think that actually is a very compelling case that you you're you know you're outsourcing potentially labor costs, you're also securing your ability to kind of um, your supply or your production lines uh, to be able to sell your your material uh, more widely and broadly yeah. I, I think that makes a huge amount of sense but this is this actually comes back in, in certain ways to you know what we've been discussing from a bigger picture uh, we have not very effectively communicated uh, that values are central to our interests across the board and that values give us uh, allow us to focus on long term objectives uh, long term european defense or um, preservation of the world order if we kind of zoom out to euro atlantic or proliferation of uh, and uh, proliferation and primacy of democracies uh, and you know that's that's the the long term values based um, proposition that should be central not the short term transactional kind of interest about maximizing profits or something of that nature just kind of keeping you know, industrial capacity indigenized or something. No, ab- absolutely. I mean, this is the point of trying to develop neo-idealism as a grand strategy for liberal democracies because it precisely makes the argument that our values are our interests. So why why do you think it's so important to defend those values? Why is liberal democracy worth fighting for? There is a humanist uh, uh, notion. Uh, you know, it's humanitarian, it's humane. You're actually not just taking care of your own people, you're taking care of people around the world. Very kind of humanist, Western liberal notion very appealing. You ask even the most entrenched MAGA around the, the U.S. the question of, you know, should people ha- enjoy freedoms around the world, uh, you know, uh, be able to defend themselves a, 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 against aggression? Overwhelmingly, the answer is yes. You add Ukraine to it, and the answer then the, the answer becomes no because it's politicized. But the basic notion, the core notion itself, because there's been some polling done on it, you just kind of um, make it anodyne. It makes makes it very, very simple and straightforward. But there's also a much uh, equally important, I wouldn't say more important, but an equally important interest proposition that it is far more resource efficient to take 
values as central than a realpolitik approach that's very transactional that fails to price in the uh, costs of this transactionality and um, doesn't recognize that kind of the potentially black swan events or I mean, they're frankly not black swan because they're foreseeable. But the, the negative outcomes, the long-term ne- negative outcomes by not challenging Russian aggression, by not supporting Ukraine, have a massive price for, uh, for each one of our societies. It's much more efficient to price in the costs on the realpolitik and the, the costs or the benefits of uh, value. I'm quite intrigued by your whole concept of the cost of not doing something. Uh, and that's something that I think that we actually need to talk a little bit more about. Um, we have not um, so far, I think, seen either German or American leadership on the whole concept of Ukraine needing to be in NATO. Um, it, we quite have, the reverse. I mean, yeah. Olaf Scholz played a key role in keeping Ukraine out of NATO at the Vilnius summit. That's now come into the President public Biden domain. Played an even more critical role, unfortunately. And, well, I mean, you know, the the, the argument also is is that is is Schultz hiding behind Biden, or is Biden hiding hiding behind Schultz on that question, right? And that that's something that we've also talked about. But let's let's uh, let's think about this a little bit differently. Um, what is the cost of not having them in? not having Ukraine in NATO uh, eventually when the time is, is, is right. We certainly have also heard from Ukrainian parliamentarians who visited Berlin, um, and I remember this very clearly. Uh, Von Klimpusch said, if Ukraine does not join NATO at the end of this war, there will be another war. Are we actually talking about this cost uh, enough? I actually jotted down this note because it's something to think through you know, more holistically. Certainly, the prospect of another confrontation with Russia with Ukraine outside of NATO is, is absolutely clear. Uh, Russia would lick its wounds, rebuild, and, and attack. But I think the cost is actually bigger than that, bigger than just more instability, more war on Europe's flanks, more cost than, than the economic shocks, d- displaced populations, all these things. I think it's actually a world order question. And I think what you end up having is... Uh, you potentially embolden authoritarian regimes around the world to uh, to believe that there's a path to victory. I think we're kind of seeing some of the outlines of that now. 20 months into this war, we were very, very you know, gleeful that Ukraine uh, was destroying the second largest army in the world that happened to be kind of our inveterate adversary, perennial threat. And we consider that Ukraine's successes were a brush back to China's aspirations in Taiwan, uh, Iran's, um, Iran's aspirations for regional dominance in the Middle East, might not be the case 20 months in. It might be that the conclusions that they're being drawn is that uh, there's, there's a, a path to, to victory, that the costs are bearable, whether they're economic for Russia, isolation, um, that there are plenty of opportunities for Iran to probably play more than just a uh, you know an arming and supporting role for Hamas attacks against Israel. I think it was probably more of a green light planning coordination role. I, that that's a priori. I don't have any any basis on which to say that, but it seems li- quite likely based on the nature of the relationship. So I think the fact is that we we're going to see much much bigger costs. Uh, with opportunism and uh, perceptions of weakness around the democratic world of vulnerability. And we're already seeing that now. We're already seeing that now. So I think if we have a, a much more ambiguous outcome rather than a clear def- a clear victory of Ukraine, which with is hard NATO to... With NATO membership. Yeah, with NATO membership. It's hard to see that now. Um, you know, frankly, it, unless we significantly change the dynamics in Ukraine, 
double down on training, prepare their military to, for a long war scenario, prepare their staffs, uh, support them with logistics and country, support them with, with all the weaponry that they need. Uh, it's hard to imagine anything but a frozen conflict. And in that kind of scenario, there is zero chance of, of uh, a NATO membership. Are we also, though, missing a way of discussing this, perhaps, as Ukrainian membership of NATO as an opportunity rather than as also something as that a really... or a danger. Yeah, yeah, that needs to happen because of the, of the situation. But, I mean, the reality is, is that if Ukraine enters NATO, we're suddenly going to have, as part of the Atlantic Alliance, one of the most battle-hardened, experienced uh, militaries in the world on the team. Are we missing um, that uh, way of discussing it, the, the opportunity that also exists? I think so. I think it kind of depends on if we're prote- protectionist or pluralist. I think part of the, the challenge for Germany is they have to contend with the fact that, and, and frankly, parts of Eastern Europe is that they wanted Ukraine on the outside specifically because they thought that the economic impact of having Ukraine in, you know, a competitor in, in, in agriculture or in industrial markets was going to be harmful to parochial national interests. So I think the fact is that if we take a much more pluralist view, which is the whole idea of a European project in the EU, uh, then there are huge benefits, huge market, huge opportunities to develop Ukraine and add them, you know, you could perceive a path 10 years down the road with Ukraine as an economic tiger and engine for for European power. Right. I mean, this is it. Ukraine is the frontier state of our better future in Europe. And we haven't seen that. And this is... That has not been articulated. The other thing is, frankly, it was interesting. Ukraine in this limbo is also extremely dangerous, frankly. You would basically have Ukrainian war dogs, some of the most battle-hardened folks around the world in a failed state looking for opportunities elsewhere, and probably Ukrainian mercenary corps roaming around the world and Africa and elsewhere, uh, which would be, a, a frankly, a driver of instability. So Yeah, and this was the, the one good part in that otherwise forgettable Henry Kissinger interview with The Economist, where he said it's a strange thing to arm a country to the teeth and then tell them they're not welcome to be with you, to reject them again. I mean, that seems like a very odd way of behaving from a strategic point of view. From our system, there is no real positive horizon for us. We're, the best case scenario is that Trump loses and Biden gets a second term, and we basically have the same team that's kind of muddling through. Is there a better chance that Germany or uh, France or uh, Europe could play a much more kind of assertive role in, in supporting Ukraine? Because there's nothing on the horizon for us. Well, this is it. I mean, Germany is muddling through as well at the moment. The current coalition has so many splits and splinters within it. The leadership in the chancellery is very much on the Biden page about that muddling through, precisely because they don't have a vision for the world after. It's very much the world of yesterday that they're clinging to. And this, this I think, cuts to the heart of your point there, that Europe isn't playing as a team and taking that pluralist approach, which would see everyone's benefit as a rising tide raising all, all boats, partly because we haven't worked out the redistribution mechanisms that would even out those costs and share the benefits a little more fairly, but also because we don't see that better future together. I also don't think that we are quite used to the idea that perhaps sometimes we need to be captain or take the the lead right. on that. And, and we if need the to US win. doesn't want to push um, this whole question, particularly of NATO membership of Ukraine, perhaps it's incumbent upon us to do so. Right, that's it. And to also not to be afraid of winning. I mean, winning shouldn't be a dirty word. We should be seeking this victory of democracies. And as you mentioned before, the margin is too thin. And I mean, the sign of a great team to take it into the sporting world for a second is one that doesn't rely on a fingers crossed approach. It has a margin of victory built in that is big enough to ride out a bad refereeing call or whatever it may be. 
we need to thicken that margin for ourselves. I'd like to end on some sort of positive note. It's kind of hard to, to see that positive note. I, I would say from our standpoint on the other side of the Atlantic, we're likely to see a, um, a democracy um, persevere and a Biden administration return for a second term, which means that at, uh, even if we're muddling through, we're such a behemoth, like a massive force that together with our, the rest of our teammates in Germany, even if we're muddling through, that may be enough. So the positive note is, you know, uh, I guess we've built a foundation over some 80 years where it might be big enough, even if we're not active enough to, to engage in and advance our core interests or clearly see what those are. Alexander Wittmann, thank you very much for joining us today on Berlin Inside Out. Thank you. Great to hear from Alex Vindman there and to have the chance to talk to him. Something that really struck me, Aaron, was how down to earth Alex was throughout our whole trip. This is someone who's been in the corridors of power, who's become famous for good deeds that he's actually done. Yet he was incredibly down to earth as well as up to the point and uh, up to the minute with the kind of strategy we should be pursuing. So it was a really pleasant conversation to have as well as a fascinating one. Absolutely. It's great talking to Alex. Um, I think also because in addition to all of the things you've said that he really has his eye on the goal and what he thinks we should be working towards strategically um, in the democratic world. Um, And that came through, I think, very clearly. It is. And we should point out that talking of working, I mean, he's tireless along with his brothers. The three of them make a formidable trio, all currently working on uh, ways to support Ukraine's victory, ways to secure our democratic societies and refresh and renew them in the way that both Aaron and I think we should be doing. So kudos to, to Alex and Team Vidman. And thanks very much to Alex for being our last guest this season. That is all for this episode of Berlin Side Out. Thank you very much uh, to all of you for listening in as well. You can find some links uh, to Alex's work in our show notes. As always, thank you to our producer, Hendrik Vanna, and to our project assistant, Julian Stückler. Join us next week on our season finale, where we pick out our highlights from the season, tie up some of the big ideas, answer some of your questions, and give you a first peek at season two. For now, though, from Berlin, Auf Wiedersehen and tschüss.